It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. We've got a nice late summer day going here, so I think I'll try this with a window open. Podcast number 359 for September 8th, 2013. This week, the video player Divix played a nasty trick on me this week, so it's gone from my computer. Router technology has changed, and you may be in the market for one soon. I'll have a tale to tell you about that. How many fake messages do you get each week from people who want to be buddies on Facebook or LinkedIn? How about Skype? In short circuits, the FTC catches a webcam maker in a lie. A new look for the new Yahoo. Amazon combines real books and ebooks. And Balmer, neither gone nor forgotten, does what's probably his final big deal. When I received a notification that an update to the video player Divix was ready, I installed it. The installer asked if I would like to install the player module for my browser. I agreed. That was a bad decision. There was no obvious immediate change, but the next day when I started Firefox and Chrome, the default search engine and the default home page for both browsers was search.conduit.com. This is a search engine with an extraordinarily poor reputation. I presume that Divix earns a few cents whenever anyone launches the search conduit page. Now, that's okay. I don't mind that. What's not okay is the fact that the installation was performed without my permission or knowledge, and it hijacked both of my primary browsers. By default, I want Chrome to open no pages, and I want Firefox to open about a dozen pages. I posted an early version of this article to Facebook, and I heard from several people that I had just done what I tell everybody else not to do, to which I have to reply, well, yeah, but... And in my own defense, there are some differentiating factors here. Divix has been a good application, and the term player module seemed reasonable. It was presented as a player module. Nothing mentioned about adding a new browser bar. I detest browser bars. Nothing about taking over as my primary search engine. Nothing about destroying all of my start pages. So given my previous good experience with Divix, I really didn't have a reason to suspect foul play. Well, Divix is no longer on any computer I own because the VLC media player seems to be capable of playing anything that Divix could, and VLC doesn't hijack my browsers. In fact, I've used VLC as my primary video viewer for a long time. The exploit hijacked Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer. In each case, any start pages I had set were simply discarded, thrown away and the conduit search engine was set as the start page. Additionally, the default search engine for each browser was discarded and switched to conduit. Now, the URL to start conduit actually passes a lot of information to the conduit search engine. 
If you check the TechBiter Worldwide website, it's everything after the question mark in the URL. Now, this isn't private information, but I'm sure that it does clearly identify to conduit the source of the click so that DivX can collect its pieces of silver. I can understand why DivX doesn't explain any of this in advance, because if they said, click this button and we'll delete all of your start pages, set your home page to a crappy search engine, and also make that crappy search engine your default search engine, probably not too many people would take them up on the offer. But if they just say, click this button and we'll install with your permission an updated player module, many people will accept the offer. I was one of them. As it turned out, getting rid of the conduit search engine wasn't particularly easy. It wasn't terribly difficult either, but it was cumbersome and it was annoying. Here's a quick rundown. For Chrome, I needed to visit the Settings panel and remove references to Conduit from the Extensions section. Then I had to change the Home Page option. Not too bad. Firefox was somewhat more difficult. I restored a previous version of the browser settings with Moz Backup and everything seemed to be fine. Seemed to be fine. But when I booted the computer, Conduit was back as my primary search engine. It was also back as my primary search engine on Chrome. Initially, I couldn't find anything in the startup directory or in the registry, but I did find a file named ministub.exe in the root directory of the C drive. That was a new file. It hadn't been there before. A Google search clearly identified this application as belonging to Conduit. The file works in conjunction with some other files that DivX and Conduit do everything they can to hide. Together, the files change the default home page and search engine preferences for all browsers. Before I was able to find the files that ministub.exe called, I tested to confirm my hypothesis by renaming the file from ministub.exe to a really rude comment underscore ministub.exe. And when I booted the system the next time, Everything remained as I'd said it. So here's the path I followed to resolve the problem. The Windows 8 Task Manager provides some insight into what applications start when the computer boots. It was here that I found the two culprits by Conduit, both of them called Search Protect by Conduit. So where are those files located? If you're using the Task Manager, you can right-click the entries and choose Open File Location. I mentioned the files were tucked away pretty carefully. They were in C colon backslash program files x86 backslash search protect backslash bin. Now that's not a directory the casual observer is going to choose to examine. And specific applications exist for Internet Explorer, Firefox, and Chrome. So at startup, each of your browsers will once again become protected by conduit. Well, I deleted all the files in that directory, then returned to the root directory and deleted my really rude comment underscore ministub.exe. At this point, I discovered Search Protect by Conduit in the list of installed programs. Actually, I checked there first to see if I could just uninstall it. And here again, DivX or Conduit has carefully obfuscated its product by moving Conduit away from the front of the name. I'd look for it in the C's, not in the S's and by setting its own name, Conduit, in lowercase. Now, it seems to me that if you're proud of your work, you're going to want people to see your name. After all, I don't name this program Random Technical Information from TechBiter. 
And I fixed Internet Explorer, too, even though I don't use it very often. To do that, it's essential to remove the DivX browser bar and to use Internet Options to reset the default search engine. So over a two-day period, two-day period, this little exploit by DivX and Conduit cost me about three hours. So I have uninstalled DivX, and I strongly recommend that you do the same if it's on your computer. Many video players exist, and there's no point in using a player such as DivX that installs what can only be called crapware without your permission or your knowledge. In honor of my birthday and a day off on Tuesday, the Wi-Fi part of my Wi-Fi router that I initially installed a year ago last month stopped working. The D-Link router had a one-year warranty and it had been in service for one year and four days. Warranty service would have been useless because I would have had to ship the thing somewhere else and wait for it to be repaired, and during the interim, most of the computing devices in the house would not have been able to access the internet because they're wireless. So it was off to buy a new Wi-Fi router. The first decision I made was not to buy another D-Link router, and local stores seem to have mainly Linksys routers in stock. I haven't owned a Linksys router since before the company was acquired by Cisco, if that tells you anything, and I found one in stock in town that supports the new 802.11ac standard. I had planned to upgrade the router later this year or early next year, once the prices had begun to fall. So the router I bought this week cost about twice what a more traditional router would have cost, and maybe $50 more than I would have paid if I'd been able to wait until early 2014. When I returned, the initial installation took about five minutes. The Linksys instructions made absolutely no sense, so I did what made sense rather than what the instructions said. The on-screen guide, though, was uncommonly good, so I was quickly able to rename the router from Cisco 06068 to something that my devices would recognize, FBI Surveillance 4267 and to modify the passkey so that the devices that recognized FBI Surveillance 4267 would already know the passkey and would continue to be on the network. And I found I had a new guest network. I actually like that addition. I gave it a different passphrase from what's used on my network, the one where all of my devices live. The next thing I noticed was that the new router's signal is considerably stronger than the signal from the old D-Link device, if you take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a little red mark on one of the images there. It shows the approximate location of the signal under the previous router. When it comes to Wi-Fi, stronger signals definitely are better signals. But then, the wired network printer appeared to be offline. Easy solution. That's because the D-Link router sets its address as 192.168.0.1, and Linksys uses a more standard 192.168.1. One. That single digit difference meant that the new router had created a new network, and because the printer had a static IP address, it existed only on the old network, which no longer existed. Changing the IP address, deleting the existing printer instance from all computers, and allowing Windows to find the new printer took care of the problem. So, as holiday birthday time wasters go, it could have been a lot worse. Still, I wasn't planning to spend a big chunk of the day being a computer tech that day. 
Later that same day, I had a discussion with an acquaintance about a Wi-Fi problem. This person's laptop computer was able to connect to the Wi-Fi router, but only when the router and the laptop were in the same room. My first thought was that the router's output might be weak, but the signal strength meter indicated an adequate signal. That's when we learned that a Kindle device in the same room as the laptop was able to connect without a problem. And that turned the problem on its head. Instead of suspecting the router, I now suspected the notebook. In fact, I once had a notebook that frequently lost its connection to the router, even when the notebook was in the same room with the router, even when the notebook was about three feet away from the router. So as a test, I bought a $10 USB Wi-Fi adapter, plugged it in, and turned off the notebook's Wi-Fi adapter. Problem solved. That's what my acquaintance is going to try. With Wi-Fi, location is everything. And we also talked about placement. A one-foot wall can appear to be several feet thick if the signal from the router to the portable device describes an oblique angle through the wall. The best location for a router actually is near the middle of your house. Mine happens to be on an outside wall, so I provide great coverage across the street, but only marginal coverage at some locations inside the house. recognize and why do they want to be friends with me on Facebook and LinkedIn? And who are all these women from all over the world? Why do they want me to add them to my Skype address book? The answer in both cases is that they're up to no good and the best option is simply to ignore them. Let's start with a Facebook invitation. In most cases, an image will appear at the left of the name. This time, it didn't, and that was one clue that this was a fraud. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. That's not a definitive indicator, though. An image might fail to appear for a legitimate request, and most of the fraudulent requests I've seen actually do have images. What is definitive is the location that the link references. Just hover your mouse cursor over the name of the person who supposedly wants to be friends or over any of the other links. Don't click, just hover. You'll probably find that all of the links go to the same location if it's a fraudulent message. In any event, the link will not be to Facebook, but as in the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, to a site in Greece. And LinkedIn suffers from this too. This is another service whose name is frequently used for fraudulent messages. A plug-in for Thunderbird, my email program, offers the ability to see the type of email program that sent any message. The information is shown in the upper right-hand corner of the message, and the message that purported to be from LinkedIn clearly showed that the message came from Thunderbird on a Linux computer. That message obviously didn't come from LinkedIn. But let's continue. Hovering the mouse cursor over the purported link shows that the target is not LinkedIn, but HAI61.com. I checked the registry for that domain name, found that it's registered to a company in China. Another clue is evident in the from line, which says the message is from Rashmi Naikar, but the person who supposedly wants to be connected with me is Hope Looney. 
Although someone with the name Hope Looney might actually exist, I considered that name alone to be a clue that this wasn't legitimate. Messages such as these might even be more effective than the typical bank fraud messages that intend to draw unsuspecting link clickers to sites that will attempt to install malware on their computers. They're more effective because many people participate in LinkedIn and Facebook, and because the messages offer seemingly legitimate and safe links that would allow you to see who the person requesting the contact is. The problem is those safe links have also been poisoned. So when you're reading an email like that, just do it like you're in a helicopter and hover. And then there's Skype. I maintain a phone number that's associated with Skype, so that means people can contact me by calling the number from any phone, or they can also call me using the Skype name. But two or three times a day, I receive Skype IM solicitations from women, or people posing as women, from countries all over the world. Skype's security settings could be much better. I have specified, for example, that I will accept internal Skype calls only from people who are in my contact list. This setting is replicated for Skype instant messages. This should mean, at least it seems like it should to me mean, that people such as Cello 2 would not be able to contact me. But still, several times a day, these ladies of the phone ask me to add them to my contact list. My response is always to block the person and to report abuse. Skype takes a different view of these settings than I do. I don't mind somebody calling me using the Skype phone number, which is why I leave that setting open for anybody who is not obscuring their phone number. But even if you set Skype IMs and calls to people in my contact list only, Skype intentionally allows people to contact you. Here's how Skype explains it. These requests are coming from users who are contacting you for the first time and on a speculative basis. There isn't any way to stop this, as any blanket block built in would prevent genuine users not on your contact list from contacting you. Okay, Skype. In fact, that's exactly what I want. I don't want people I don't know to send me IMs, and I don't want them to call me using my Skype ID. So, the only solution, as far as Skype is concerned, is to continue doing what I'm doing. In short circuits, the Federal Trade Commission has accused internet video camera manufacturer TrendNet of lying to consumers. The company said that the cameras it makes are secure, but according to the FTC, the company knew about a security flaw that allowed hackers to take over the cameras at will. The FTC accuses the company of recklessly endangering their customers because hackers, as early as January 2012, had demonstrated the system's security flaws. The Internet-enabled cameras transmitted customers' login information unencrypted over the Internet, making them clearly visible to anybody who observed the data stream. TrendNet also had a mobile application that was supposed to allow the owner of the camera to control it using a smartphone. TrendNet did upload a security patch to their website when the flaw was revealed, and they did attempt to contact customers. 
The FTC is unable to find the company in this case, but TrendNet has agreed to submit to a 20-year security compliance auditing program. And it signed an agreement stating that it will no longer misrepresent the security of its cameras. In signing the consent order, TrendNet makes it possible for the FTC to impose fines if the company lies to consumers in the future. According to the FTC, the company's actions increased the likelihood that consumers would be targeted for theft or other criminal activity, as well as making it possible for strangers to observe camera owners' families via the Internet. logo. The old logo was purple, flat, and cartoonish. The new logo is more in the blue range, but still somewhat purple, sculpted, beveled, and somewhat less cartoonish. The old logo carried the registered trademark symbol. The new logo doesn't even have the TM symbol that's used before a trademark is registered. Yahoo apparently put a lot of work into designing the new logo in which the second O is oversized, just as it was in the original logo. And it seems that Yahoo wants to share that story. They have a video posted on their website. But when I went there, I got a message that said, We're sorry, we're experiencing technical difficulties. Please try again in a few minutes. Well, several hours later, I was able to check out the video, hoping that it would provide some insight into what the designer's intent was. Well, it revealed nothing, but at least it was short. The old logo had been in place since not long after Yahoo was founded, 18 years ago. In the 14 months that former Google executive Marissa Meyer has been in charge, Yahoo has changed its policy on working from home, updated the service's main page, improved its email service, and enhanced Flickr. There have also been several acquisitions aimed at improving Yahoo's reach on mobile devices. The largest of those acquisitions, the $1.1 billion purchase of Tumblr. So why is this logo such a big deal? Well, in the words of the company's PR folks, we wanted a logo that stayed true to our roots, whimsical, purple, with an exclamation point, yet embraced the evolution of our products. Yeah, they learn how to write that in PR school. I noticed that one pundit was wondering on Friday if Yahoo's longtime users would accept the company because the logo was such a radical departure from what the company had used for the past 18 years. Much as I like ebooks, there are times when a real paper book has definite advantages. Novels and nonfiction books are generally good candidates as ebooks because we simply read them front to back without a lot of skipping around. Reference books, on the other hand, are used in a completely different way. We jump from page 36 to 875, back to 52 and up to 457, all of this in tracking down the information we need or to answer a question. Now, that's not so easy in an ebook. 
But ebooks don't take up a lot of space. We can carry around hundreds of titles in a package about the size of a thin trade paperback. Paper books can exist in only one location at a time, and they are bulky. So when we buy books, we have to decide which set of advantages and disadvantages we want to accept for any particular book. Light and portable, or easy to jump around in. You pick one, you pick the other. Very few people buy both. In a few cases, I have made the wrong choice. Amazon is usually understanding and allows people to return an electronic version of a book and buy a paper copy in its place. Going the other way probably isn't as easy, or hasn't been, until now. Now, Amazon offers a better choice. Here's how it works. You have to start with the paper version of the book. Then, if you decide you want the electronic version, you can buy it for $1 or $3. And, in fact, some of the electronic versions are free. Typical prices for ebooks are in the $10 to $15 range. Now, currently, this is a test of a new service that Amazon calls Matchbook, and it doesn't apply just to new purchases, but to any book you purchased as early as 1995. And 1995 is the year Amazon was founded. Matchbook doesn't apply to all books, though. So far, only a few publishers have signed up for the program. So we'll see how this works out. but Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer will leave the company with either the keys to its own rejuvenation or a time bomb with a burning fuse. Microsoft phones are currently in distant third or fourth place behind Android phones and Apple phones. Microsoft wants to change that, so it bought a Nokia. Not a phone, the whole company. In purchasing Nokia's phone business, Microsoft also brings Stephen Elop, Nokia's chief executive, back to Microsoft, the number of analysts who think that Microsoft can move into either first or second place in the phone marketplace is approximately equal to the number of General Motors board members who drive Ford trucks to the office. In other words, the $7.2 billion deal isn't too likely to change the relative positions of the players. So, why? Well, you know, Microsoft is getting up there in years. It's nearing 40 38 if you want to be exact, and it appears to be going through kind of a midlife crisis. So Microsoft can't buy itself a shiny red convertible, and it can't very easily sneak across town to have an affair. So the solution seems to be an attempt to reinvent itself. In a way, Microsoft today looks a lot like Apple did in the mid-1990s. Apple's products at that time were first-rate, but sales were really lousy. Apple brought back Steve Jobs, who ruthlessly transformed Apple, Microsoft, on the other hand, has, within about a one-week period, announced that its CEO is going to be stepping down and that it's made a giant acquisition. You know, big acquisitions are difficult enough when the CEO and the board are all longtime veterans who plan to stick around through the conclusion. A CEO hunt that's simultaneous with an acquisition could spell trouble for both. Or, of course, it could be an opportunity. So, why? 
Well, Microsoft is under a lot of pressure from investors to improve its stock performance. At a time when desktop PC sales are declining, tablet computer sales are increasing, and smartphone sales are exploding, Microsoft perhaps sees an opportunity in a new marketplace. With the advent of the Surface tablet, even though sales have been disappointing, Microsoft has clearly entered the hardware market. And that moves it closer to Apple's business model. Despite all the fuss about Apple's operating system, the company is mainly a hardware company. BlackBerry continues to be a force in the smartphone marketplace, but it no longer has the resources it once had. The combined Microsoft and Nokia certainly has a lot of money and a lot of smart people to call on. Although Nokia is no longer the standout leader in the telephone handset marketplace, it does retain second place if you include all phone types, not just smartphones. Three years ago, Nokia made a deal with Microsoft to use Microsoft's phone software for its smartphones. Despite early stumbles, the current crop of Windows phones are well regarded. But check this out. If you consider the smartphones sold between April and June of this year, just under 80% were Android devices. 79.3% if you want to be precise. Apple phones had 13.2% of the market. What does that leave? Well, Windows phones had 3.7% of the market. And everybody else combined had 3.8%. So I keep coming back to, so why? Well, there's slightly more to this deal, perhaps, than just the acquisition. Stephen Elop will step down as Nokia's CEO when the deal closes, presumably early next year, and he will once again be a Microsoft employee. That clearly puts him in a position for consideration as the next CEO of Microsoft. Initially, though, he'll be responsible for Microsoft's games and music division, as well as Microsoft's hardware division. In his previous Microsoft position, Elop ran the business division. That's the group responsible for the office suite. And earlier, Elop was head of Macromedia, at the time when it was acquired by Adobe, and he ended up running Adobe's field operations. This is a guy with some pretty good experience. So in other words, this 49-year-old Canadian seems to be a top candidate for the top slot at Microsoft. And maybe that's why. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.